The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In the last chapter of Tale of the Manticore, the party begins to explore the oddly quiet convent. It appears to be abandoned, yet there is evidence that suggests at least one person is there. They find an empty dining room, and then, following a noise, a kitchen. Both rooms contain a good deal of food that has been left to spoil, seemingly untouched. The smell is overpowering. When it comes again, Harl follows the noise into the next room to find the source. It turns out to be nothing more dangerous than a rat. As it scuttles away, the rat manages to knock over some alchemical equipment, smashing a large glassware alembic on the floor, and wasting a fortune's worth of a substance Umura identifies as Mithridaticum elixir. Sadly, most of it is spilled and lost, but Umura does manage to salvage a single dose. Next, in a flashback, we learn more about Gyrios' early life among the monks, and relationship with his mentor, Prior Imril. After that, the dice come out and go for a roll, because Harl achieves level 3. Finally, the party explores another hallway and investigates an empty dorm room. Here, Gyrios finds a prayer book, which lets him know which deity the convent is devoted to. Hanavi, the blind maiden of hope, is worshipped here, if anyone is actually here. When they open the next door, they find something terrible. Chapter 33, Part 1, Day 41. Afternoon. Party status. Harl, 21 of 21 hit points. Eridine, 12 out of 12 hit points. Gyrios, 21 of 21 hit points. Umura, 13 of 13 hit points. Ursulith, 4 of 4 hit points. Spells available. Umura has memorized Shield, Light, and Levitate. Gyrios has prayed for purify food and water, and cure light wounds. What is in that room, Master Dwarf? asked Gyrios. A tragedy, replied the dwarf mysteriously before gathering himself and walking back in. Harl Stonecarver had seen much violence in his life. In fact, he had caused quite a bit of it personally. But to him, violence in the name of justice was not a thing to be abhorred. By contrast, Violence perpetrated against the innocent was the worst thing he could name, and it was a thing he had never gotten used to. With one awful exception, the room he entered was much like the last. 
There was a desk, a barred window with the view of the foothills and woods beyond, footlockers on the floor, and a trio of beds. But, sprawled across the beds, like rag dolls, laid three young female forms. Formerly white robes clung to their bodies, the cloth now bloody and black. The three corpses crawled with flies. When alive, the eldest of these three would not have been more than twenty. The youngest looked about twelve. They had all been killed by blows to the head with a blunt weapon, a mace, or a hammer. Harl could see where parts of their skull had been crushed. Ursuleth, stay back, said Harl through gritted teeth. I don't want you to see this. Thankfully, the young dwarf heeded the warning and stayed in the hall with Eredin. When Gyrios entered the room, he sighed heavily. Mesica, defend us, he breathed. Who could have done a thing like that? Who or what? added Harl. Umora, having caught just a glimpse of the carnage within, had chosen to stay in the hall as well. She nervously tucked a lock of hair behind her ear and checked on her lantern. Unconsciously, she eyed the third closed door, afraid of what might be behind it. There's nothing we can do for them, said Harl. Come on. Give me a moment, said Gyrios. He muttered a prayer for the dead as he moved into the room, disturbing the flies who burst into a dark cloud. Gyrios had noticed something on the writing desk. He picked it up and moved over to the corpses. He went about the grim work of arranging them into more dignified positions on their beds, and then put the item from the desk into the hands of the youngest victim. It was a holy symbol of Hanavi, the blind maiden, a miniature silver jug representing the waters of healing that the goddess was known for. Rest you in eternity, he said, closing the eyelids of another girl. Her face was frozen in a final look of terror from whatever they had beheld before. Presumably she and these other two girls had fled into this room where they had been cornered and murdered. After he had laid them to rest, Gyrios said the final words of his prayer and left the room, closing the door behind him and leaving the flies to their feast. Harl was in no hurry to open the next door. He was afraid of what he might see, but it had to be done. So the dwarf grasped the handle and pushed the door open. Another wave of stink hit him, and he staggered. Inside was a scene like the last. This time, there was only one body, but its condition was worse than the others. This woman had suffered horribly before she died, and she had died alone. This sister was older than the others, perhaps Umura's age. She'd also been killed by a blow to the head. Whoever had done it must have been very strong, for they had broken her neck. The head now hung limp, flush with the left shoulder. The skin below the jawline had gone black from internal bleeding. Her right temple was dented and covered in dried blood. In fact, there was blood everywhere. Her white gown was cow-patterned with it. The walls were misted with it here and there, as was the mattress. A thick, dark line of it slashed across the wall, cutting through some text that had been painted on the stone. Harl moved closer to read it, while calling to the others over his shoulder, You best wait outside. On closer inspection, the writing on the wall was revealed to be a poem, painstakingly hand-painted in beautiful calligraphy. It read, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. Harl? Gyrius sounded concerned. Are you all right? 
The cleric's face appeared in the doorway, and then, seeing the brutality within, went slack. Oh, oh no. Harl wiped a tear off his cheek and turned around, leaving Gyrios to enter and give last rites to the sister. In the hallway, Eredine had her ear against the iron-bound door that marked the end of the corridor. Has she heard anything? A roll of one to three and a die six indicates that she has. The roll. It's a one. That is a success. Eredine pressed her ear against the wall. She did hear something this time, but it was so very faint. She had no idea what it could be. Umura read her expression and lifted her eyebrows in silent inquiry. Eredine nodded and shrugged to indicate that she wasn't sure what was on the other side. She listened again, concentrating. She could hear something moving. Footsteps? Yes, it sounded like footsteps. There's people behind this door, she whispered. Umura did a quick calculation. There was seating for six in the dining area, and they had found three beds in each dorm room. They had also found four bodies, so there should be five or more sisters yet to be found. Alive, she hoped. Harl had come to the same conclusion. Garyos, he said. Look for a key. While Garyos searches the room, Eredine will try to pick the lock on the door. Even as a third-level thief, she only has a 25% chance of success. The roll. A nine! Wow, that was unexpected. Garyos emerged from the room, looking haunted. Distracted. He glanced at Harl. No key, he said. Just then there was a click, and the heavy padlock came open in Eredine's little hand. She looked a little bit surprised at her own success. Impressive, said Umura. Now, I wonder what we'll find on the other side of this door. Best be ready for anything. Eredine nodded and moved away from the door, drawing her sword. Hi, I'm Tom, and I want to tell you about Tales of Mistara, a podcast that mixes storytelling with old-school pen and paper games. Tales of Mistara is a D&D game, but without players or a dungeon master. There is only me, the rules, and the dice. Join me on your Apple, Google, or Amazon podcast app, or talesofmistara.podbean.com as I tell my story, where nothing is precious, no one is safe from the roll of the dice. Day 28, 13 days ago. At first, they had hoped for salvation. After all, hope was a part of their nature, a part of their essence. Hope was their faith. Something about the man had been terrifying beyond reason. Their minds had gone blank when they first saw him, as blank as virgin parchment. Then, at his voice, a single word was written upon that parchment. Run. And they had. They had fled to the cloister, all three of them, where they had joined the other two. Sister Marzo and Sister Ava were under the statue when they burst in. They had been busy training the convent's guard dog, Otis. By the time the fleeing sisters recovered their senses enough to explain the imminent danger, the door slammed shut behind them, and they heard the sound of a padlock snapping shut. Moments later, crowded around the door, amid the frantic sound of Otis's barking, they heard the wailing of their sisters on the other side. Screams, whimpers, and pleas for mercy that, one by one, simply stopped. They began to panic. They were trapped in the cloister, locked in. 
This door was the only way in or out, and it was locked from the other side. There were no windows here. The cloister was mostly open to the sky, save for a high-ceilinged arcade that traced a square walkway within the square space. The walls were smooth, impossible to climb. They were truly trapped. The first few hours were spent in fear of the door opening. What would they do when that man entered and did to them whatever he had done to their sisters? But the pendulum began to swing the other way as the hours passed, and after a time they began to fear the opposite. What if nobody came? What if the door didn't open? Hours passed and nothing happened. They worried and shook in fear. They held each other for comfort. They prayed. Eventually they felt the first pangs of hunger and thirst. By the second day, they noticed that Otis had begun to act erratically. He barked incessantly for long stretches of time and then grew quiet all of a sudden. At night, he howled and bayed. It became unbearable. Some of the sisters began to feel their grip on sanity start to slip. By the end of the third day, Otis had gone almost silent. Sometimes he would growl aggressively at a few of the sisters, but mostly he was silent and kept his distance from the women. They knew what was causing the dog to act in such a mercurial way. It was dying of thirst. They all were. If nobody came to save them, they would all be dead before long. There was nothing to do but pray. Pray and hope. Then a miracle happened. On the morning of the fourth day, it rained. In fact, it stormed harder than any of them had seen in ages. Without question, it was a sign that they must carry on. Hanavi, the goddess of hope, had answered their prayers. The sisters could not know that somewhere roughly 100 miles west of the convent, a group of adventurers was about to find a rocky overhang under which they would face off against a group of shadowy horrors. The rainwater staved off the thirst. The storm had been so powerful that little pools of water remained on the ground long after it was over. Four of the five sisters had their holy symbols with them. The symbols were miniature water jugs and could be used to store a little of the fresh rainfall. But hunger remained, ever-present and getting worse and worse. The first sign of real trouble came on the fifth day. Otis had resumed his aggressive interludes again, and in the evening spun into a frenzy, racing around the perimeter of the cloister, barking his head off. Ulif, the youngest of the gathered sisters, tried to calm him. Ulif and Otis were lifelong fast friends. She had raised him from a puppy. She and some of the others jokingly called him Brother Otis and devoted many hours every week playing with and training the dog. Brother Otis wasn't as cute as he used to be. Now he was a fully grown mastiff, hip high and thick boned. He had a jaw like a bear trap. Ulif had never once been afraid of Otis. Even then she did not fear him. She should have. Otis went berserk. When she called to him and approached, he leapt up knocking her flat and standing over her, straddling her. In horror, the other sisters watched as Otis locked his jaws on Ulif's neck and began to savage her. Most of the sisters were paralyzed with fear, but the eldest of them, Sister Churns, managed to will herself into action. She found a loose brick in a corner and ran back with it. Sister Churns raised it over her head and brought it down hard on Otis's head. One strike was not enough. Churns had to bring that brick down four more times before the Mastiff finally stopped moving. By then, Sister Ulif was dead, her throat a ragged ruin. On the sixth day, the four remaining sisters ate the dog. They ate it raw. 
Even though they were starving, it was almost impossible to keep it down. Most of what they ate, they vomited back up, unable to parse the wrongness of what they were doing. The taste of dog meat stayed with them, making them feel sicker and hungrier simultaneously. There was nothing left of Brother Otis by the seventh day, but the hunger was relentless. On the seventh day, they ate Sister Ulif. Chapter 33, Part 2, Day 41, Late Morning, Party Status. The party status is unchanged. Harl insisted that he be the one to open the door, saying they might find danger on the other side. Umura was worried enough by this time to let him and moved behind the Eridine, who now had her sword drawn. Gyrios too drew his flail. Before he did so, he handed the owl figurine to Umura and said, I think now might be the time to use this. Can you read the rune etched on the bottom? I think so, replied the magic user. Let's find out. Altenok. Ah, yes, I felt it pulse in my hand. Harl gave them each a quick look to be sure they were ready and then pushed the door open. Beyond was a wide square space, easily 60 by 60 feet. It was obviously a cloister to any of them who knew of such places. A covered walkway traced the perimeter, and in the middle was an area that was open to the sky. Sunlight fell upon a ten-foot-tall statue that dominated the inner space. The statue was of light gray stone. It showed a straight-backed woman holding a water jug with both hands against her abdomen. This was the deity, Hanavi, the Blind Maiden. As in all the other depictions of her that they had seen, this one had no eyes. A smooth plane occupied the space where her eyes would have been. At the base of the statue was something that looked at first like a pile of rags or some other garbage. Initially, they saw no threats. Nothing moved at all. Harl squinted in confusion and was about to ask Aradine if she was sure she had heard something. But when he looked at the young rogue, he saw that she was staring straight past him with a look of horror and disbelief on her face. He looked back and instantly saw what she did. The pile of rags or garbage was neither of those things. At first, he noticed the white shape of a ribcage. What he had taken for rags was actually ragged flesh. He was looking at the mutilated body of a human being, or perhaps two. The corpse or corpses were jumbled together in a ruined pile. There was a great deal of exposed bone, as if their flesh had been removed. Removed or eaten. Whatever further thoughts Harl might have had were pushed aside when he saw movement from the far corners of the room. From several shaded spots, figures now emerged. He could tell that they were not human, though they were more or less human in form. Four of them, naked and pale, hair long and matted, their fingers ended in dirty claw-like nails. They moved tentatively at first, but then, as if catching a scent, suddenly broke into a sprint and spanned half the distance with surprising speed. Time seemed to slow as they came on, hissing and slobbering, bearing teeth like shark's teeth. Weird, long, black tongues dangled from their mouths the way dogs' tongues do on a hot day. Although he couldn't be sure, Harl thought he heard them repeat a single word over and over. And, exclaimed Umura, the figurine, it's hot. Gyrios did not need any magic to tell him that the things racing toward them were evil. 
He transferred his flail to his shield hand while he retrieved his holy symbol with the other. Everyone stand back. When the cleric raised his golden coin, his hand was visibly shaking. For the second time in his life, he said the following words. Creatures of undeath shall burn in the eternal light of Mazagar. They had been sisters in life. Now, they did not even know each other's names. Perhaps they did not know their own. Suspended in a cursed state between life and death, they knew nothing but constant hunger. To Hanavi, cannibalism is a blasphemy, and for their sinful transgression, four guilty souls have been transformed into ghouls. Ghouls are two hit die undead creatures. Three of these ghouls have nine hit points, and one of them, Sister Churns, the eldest, has eleven hit points. They all have an armor class of six and a morale of nine. The thing that makes them so deadly is their ability to paralyze an opponent who fails a saving throw following a successful hit. Each ghoul gets three attacks per round with two claws and a bite. Although each attack only does one to three points of damage, their chance of landing at least one hit is quite high. The paralysis lasts two to eight turns, so it essentially takes opponents out of a fight completely. Interestingly, according to the BX rules, a Cure Light Wound spell will cure this kind of paralysis. I debated for a while over whether Gyrios would know this and decided at last that, since this is a faith-based magic, that he would know. Gyrios also knows that these creatures can be turned. To be honest, it is critical that he succeeds in at least turning some of them. If he fails his role, which I will allow before melee begins, the party will have to endure 12 potentially paralyzing attacks. This is the kind of thing TPKs are made of, so I'm feeling a little bit anxious about this fight. But there's nothing for it. Let's make the roll. As a third level cleric, Gyrios can automatically turn skeletons and zombies, but success is not guaranteed with these creatures. He needs to roll a 7 or better on 2d6. The roll. A 7. Yikes, that was too close for comfort. But Gyrios will not necessarily turn them all. I need to roll another 2d6 to determine how many hit dice are affected. The roll. A 4. Not a good roll. Only two of these creatures are turned. When Gyrios holds up his coin, blazing white beams lance forth from it, striking the creatures. Two of them fall into a crutch, squealing and covering their faces. They turn and flee back to their shadowy corners. The other two endure the holy fire and fall upon Harl and Gyrios, the only two members of the party they can reach. Round one, initiative, the ghouls, a five, the party, a two. One of the ghouls lunges at Gyrios. It needs a 15 to hit his armor class. Here come the three attacks, a 14, a nine, a three. It is critical that Gyrios not be paralyzed. The other ghoul, raving, throws itself at Harl. It needs a 14 to hit his armor class. A 7. A 17. A 6. That 17 hits. <sighs> I smell the living! One of its claws manages to find a chink in his armor, and it strikes for three points of damage. Harl feels a horrible sensation as his body begins to go rigid. He must save versus paralysis. 
He needs a 12 or better on a d20. Here's the roll. A 13. He feels his muscles begin to lock, but somehow pushes through. Now it's the party's turn. Harl brings his axe across in a wide arc. He needs a 12 to hit. A 6. The paralysis has made him slow. Gyrios strikes with his flail. He needs a 13. A 5. That's a clumsy miss. As for Eredin, she cannot reach the ghouls. They're clustered in the doorway. She spends her turn checking to make sure Ursulith stays well back and waits for an opportunity. Umura casts her spell of light to blind a ghoul. The ghoul needs a 16 to save. Here's the roll. A 14. A good roll, but a fail. As the spell takes effect, bright white light streams forth from the creature's eyes. It screams and gnashes its teeth. As it is blind, the school will fight at a minus four penalty from now on. <laughs> round two. In this round, I'll allow Harl to move into the room enough to let Eredin join the fight. It might make a retreat more difficult, but Harl feels it's worth the trade-off. Initiative. The ghouls. A two. The party. A three. The party will attack first. Harl makes his attack. He'll need to roll a 12, or better. An 18, Harl manages to shove the ghoul back, chops down with his axe, and opens a gash across the ghoul's torso. It screeches in fury. Next, Gyrios has his turn. He needs a 13 or better. A 12, almost, but not good enough. Eridine is now in this fight. She also needs a 13 or better to hit with her short sword. Three is a miss. For her turn, Umura casts Shield on Eridine, improving her armor class to a three. Now it's the ghoul's turn. The one attacking Gyrios is blind. I can smell your flesh. Normally it would need a 15 to hit him, but in this case it needs a 19. All the same, it launches a series of vicious attacks. Claw, claw, and bite. Here are the rolls. 14, 15, and 15. Gyrios manages to get up his silver shield and blocks the frenzied blows. The ghoul attacking Harl surges forward. It needs a 14 to hit him. Claw, claw, and bite. Two dice for the claws. A 20 and a 17, that's two hits, and the bite. A 16. Well, that's three hits, including a critical. This is not good. The ghoul has launched itself onto Harl, knocking him to the ground and savaging him. Damage for the critical will be three, plus one. For the other claw, two. For the bite, three. Altogether, that's nine points of damage. Harl is now down to just nine hit points. He won't survive another round like this one. Worse, he has to save against paralysis three times, and he needs a 12 or better to save. Here are the rolls. A 14. An 18. Could he possibly avoid paralysis? There's no way. Here's the third roll. An 8. The inevitable happens. Despite his impressive resistance, his muscles stiffen and his joints lock up. The BX rules say that a ghoul will find a new opponent when one has been successfully paralyzed. This ghoul turns to Eridine and smiles. Three. Initiative. The ghouls. A one. The party. A three. 
that was lucky. The party needs to start landing some hits, or they're finished. For his turn, Gyrios casts Cure Light Wounds on Harl. The paralysis is removed, and the dwarf is restored by... 7 points. Hit points go back to 16 for Harl. Eredin tries to flank one of the ghouls. Her sword sings out. She needs a 13 or better. An 18! Yes! A 3 or better on the damage roll will drop this creature. 5! An overhead chop ends this ghoul's miserable unlife. One ghoul remains, but it is unhurt. Harl manages to scramble to his feet. He attempts to chop the legs out from under this last ghoul. He needs a 12 to hit. A 15! The party is on a roll. Let's see how much damage he does. A roll of 8 will one-shot this fiend. Haha! <laughs> An 8! Harl succeeds in sweeping low. He lops a foot off at the ankle. When the thing falls, shrieking, he brings down his blade on its chest and ends it. Combat is over. Knowing there's no time to lose, the companions retreat into the hall, slam the door shut, and slap the padlock back into place before the remaining two ghouls decide to return and brave Gyrios' holy symbol once again. Harl's skin is paler than it has ever been. His forehead is covered in a sheen of sweat. That was not pleasant, he said flatly, frowning. Not pleasant at all. He wipes his face. And thank you, Gyrios. Thirty minutes later, Umura and Eridine were in the workroom. They had cleared the broken glass and debris from the floor, and Eridine was now at work on the far door's padlock. As for Harl, Gyrios, and Ursuleth, they were in the kitchen. The three were preparing a few items they thought might be of use in the near future, and using the cheesecloth taken from the dining room to minimize the stink of rot by holding it over their noses and mouths. Gyrios had selected a large knife cut free fuzzy clumps of mold from a large wheel of hard goat cheese he insisted would be perfectly safe to eat when he had finished. Harl was doing the same with a loaf of bread. Harl wasn't able to salvage much bread, but Gyrios was successful in procuring enough food to last all five of them another two days. Added with the scraps of edibles that Harl and Ursulith were able to find, bread, nuts, dried fish, and berries, the party would be able to go three full days before they ran out of food. When they'd completed their search, Harl asked Gyrios to pass his knife to Ursulith. It's high time you held a weapon, cousin. It's not safe for you to be unarmed. Not after what almost happened back there. Ursulith hadn't refused. She studied the knife for a moment, wiped it clean on the cheesecloth, and tucked it into her belt. Umura's search in the adjacent workroom turned up a few more papers with recipes and formulae she found interesting, and a pair of empty stoppered vials, which she took for later use. But there was nothing else worth carrying in terms of components or reagents. She did find a decanter of fresh water, and before they left the area, all five of our companions topped up their water supply. As for Eridine, she had spent all this time concentrating on the lock. Our rogue has a mere 25% chance of success at tasks like this, but let's see how she did. At 38, she was unable to pick the lock. Upon her failure, there was a brief conversation where Umura and Harl considered trying to break the lock, but ultimately they decided not to. Umura wanted to leave and resume their journey to the Arleguar, but Gyrios did not agree. He insisted that they continue to investigate the convent until they were sure there were no survivors. We still have not seen the head priestess. If there is any chance she is still alive, we cannot abandon her to the dangers that we know still abide. Umura had wanted to argue, but she could see that Gyrios was resolved to this course of action. After what they had seen him do, turning the creatures in the cloister, nobody least of all Harl, was inclined to argue. 
Somewhere nearby there will be a nave, or at least a chapel. After we have been there, if there is no help we can give, then we can go. He suggested they go back outside and look for the convent's main entrance. Lead the way, cleric. Let us give help if it is in our power to give, said Umora. Good. Then follow me. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to lend your support, please consider spreading the word on social media or leaving a rating or review on the podcatcher of your choice. I've let this episode run a little longer than usual, so I'll make the sign-off brief. My gratitude to a new voice to the show for breathing unlife into the ghouls who, once, were the Sisters of Hope. Allie from Syracuse and New York's Fed Ash, thank you very much. If you like hard music, you should check them out. I'll post a link to their stuff on taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. Allie's is not the only new voice to the show. A warm welcome to Louisa. Louisa's is the voice you heard reading the poem, written on the wall, earlier in the episode. Louisa, thank you so much for being a part of the show. The adventure will continue on the next Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Hey, Scales, is this thing on? Yeah? Okay. Hello, I'm Asher Flinhart, and if you're hearing this, that means you can listen to the World of Guldevere podcast. You can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and more. The show is me, my five friends, Scales and Plaque the Created, OJ the Kobaloi, Rhodes the Snow Rangalon, and Ori the Moon Elf. We play a free indie TTRPG called Wildervere, run by the people who write the game and their friends. Watch us travel the magical city-states of our cozy, friendly, and wild world, learning new skills, and enjoying a lot of new adventures in a Saturday morning kind of style. We release every other Wednesday on all major podcast platforms. You can also follow us on Twitter at Wildervere, or on a Discord server you can find at worldofwildervere.card.com. Thank you so much for listening to our travels. Rose is going to flake when we, he hears we have clout, whatever he called it. Bye-bye! Skills, you can... You can stop now. What do you mean OJ's gone? Um...